Welcome to The People on Kchung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Our guests today are Kristen Kammermeyer and Claire Riffle. Kristen Kammermeyer is a multimedia artist in Los Angeles focusing on site-specific projects. I think if I didn't have an art practice, I would be a hoarder for sure. So like art is a way for me to kind of like, okay, I need to do something with this. I need to like kind of like digest it. Well, I've seen your studio and it doesn't look like a hoarder studio, I have to say. Also with us to discuss Kristen's work is Claire Riffle. Claire's a writer, curator, and art historian in Los Angeles. And she's currently finishing up her dissertation through NYU. Writing about the 60s, which is something that I've been doing a lot, especially in L.A. I mean, psychedelia and, and um, artists were extremely interested in the occult um, in the late 50s and into the 60s. Um, so to me, there is a very sort of L.A. aspect to the installation that you've done. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond on Kei Chung, 16.30 a.m. every third Sunday at 3 p.m. Like a broken record, magically repaired. You can listen to The People on the live stream at kchungradio.org. That's K-C-H-U-N-G radio.org. Or you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. To find out more, go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. Kristen Kammermeyer and Claire Riffle, welcome to The People. Thanks, guys. Thank you for having us. Yeah, Thank agreed. you. <laughs> Kristen, you have a show up currently at Outside Gallery mm-hmm. in Lincoln Heights. Mm-hmm. And for people who don't know your work very well, maybe talk just a little bit about the process, because you're talking about collecting materials. Like, mm-hmm. how does that play out when you're right, creating right. a thing? Well, um, yeah, so I'd say that these projects probably have been in development for the past three years um, after graduating from Cranbrook Academy of Art. And a lot of them involve going to residencies or being invited to alternative spaces and things like that. And there's travel involved. So it, um, it's also kind of a, about economy. So um, if I'm traveling cross country, doesn't make any sense for me to schlep materials there and then um so I started to kind of get excited about the idea of working with available materials and a lot of my work is driven by um um I'd say observations about the site and the environment around me and also in combination with like what I bring to it and the baggage of like my visual vocabulary that I, I will bring with me to a particular site. So to me that working with available materials um, functioned as a way to embed um, the essence of the site that I was working at. And, um, and then I also in tw- uh, 2013, I did a, a four month residency at the waste management facility in San Francisco. It's called Recology SF. And they have an artisan residence program there. So um, in combination with that residency, which really, um, for me, highlighted a sense of urgency and responsibility in consum- consuming goods and starting to try to um, be a little more responsible as a consumer in my own practice. And so that also tied into the idea of working with what's available and borrowing the materials of the site. And depending on what work comes out of the project they would either become their own discrete objects or maybe I return them to the place that I I found them but yeah and in the case of outside gallery the materials the available materials happen to be oh yeah so the 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 title of the the work that's for 
um, outside gallery is a big wheel, two chairs, and a tray. So those are the four objects that I started with. And basically it was just um, taking, taking the materials home, cleaning them, taking them apart as far as I could. Um, so the big wheel is just like there's all these like threaded rods and then um, some bolts. And so it's just like trying to reduce them down to these raw materials. So in the studio, they end up like lined up on my floor. And then it's a process of like re um, kind of um, folding the different materials in together to try to transform them a little bit. And I do I'm, I'm interested in the audience being able to identify the materials, but not like immediately. I want it to kind of unfold a little further into the encountering with the work. Where did you find them? Were they just kind of on the side of the road? Near, yeah, I mean... Near the gallery? Right. Or, yeah. It's a whole um, culture there. Yeah. Like literally every block around your space there has these little corners that seem to be... Um, designated as... Yeah, designated. Yeah. free stuff and, here. And I, adjacent like on the opposite corner there's this is it like an auto repair place yeah and there's one of those um uh like donation boxes there but then next to those the donation boxes where i think it's like clothes and and um shoes but there's enough available available space on that corner that all kinds of things right right couches tvs you know yeah and they're they're kind of like I, th- I feel like they're placed there as a as an offering. I literally just drove out your driveway, turned left, found the tray on the next block. Then I went one like one more half block, found that chair that was broken, and then went one more block and found the big wheel. So I I I just kind of drove around the block and yeah. um and I think my criteria for the, the um for being attracted and deciding to select these items was is very formally driven i'm like that's a nice color that looks you know and like the chair has this um really interesting fabric that's kind of gestural and my work is really hard like geometry so it was like oh this is like a nice way to kind of like Mm -hmm. uh diversify the visual language that i was gonna be working with so um and then the big wheel has circles and i think circles are kind of difficult for me to make there, there's a lot more involved in making mm. circles, like with the hand. <laughs> sure. Um, and I do use a lot of taping, but just it was just like, oh great, I got a bunch of circles here with all these wheels, and yeah. then these like also really strange molded, manufactured forms with the axle and. Um, but aside from the like the formal decisions that you're making when you're mm-hmm. claiming these things, like what I don't think we've got to the bottom of like what the importance or what the function of the of the transformation through reclamation mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. what is what's going on with that like why is it important that you get the materials from the area that you're working right right and use them right. aside from the formal things right right i mean for me it's kind of um exciting as an artist to approach a work um kind of ha- like halfway like meet it halfway so it just it just is like um i don't think of it as like cheating or whatever but it's it's like okay I'm interested in like making work that reflects the um, vicinity of the place that I'm working in because that was I mean that's like the foundation of the work that I've done in the past I don't know I also just find it exciting to respond to things and um, I think I sometimes become suspicious of my own decision making so it's it's a way to kind of introduce something new and fresh for me to like work with so 
I mean, the big wheel's all plastic. Like, that's not a material that I can, you know, I, I don't work with in the studio. It's essentially like wood and paint and tape. So right. I was kind of excited, like, oh, this is like a new material. Let's see, like, what I can do with it. And, um, yeah, so it's just uh, a way to kind of add an unexpected element for me to respond to and see what kind of, like, spontaneous results. So it's like a formal that. constraint. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's all parameters with these things, too. Like, site-specific, all the site-specific works have these parameters of, like, time and budget and um, the the amount of space I have. Like, they, there's, like interesting things that push back against me and I feel like the more um the more restrictions I have the more excited I get about like working against those or like kind of like okay how far can I push against that potentially or it's just a way to kind of ground the work too to give it a framework so I mean I I I literally think of all those things as like um relating to like the stretch frame of a canvas like I'm just like okay these are the this is like the, the the delineation of the space that I'm able to work in. So, um, and you're less yeah. interested in maybe the histories of the objects that you're finding. Right. It's I mean, more a formal yeah. approach, right? Right, right. Yeah. I mean, and that was the thing in particular with the objects from um, Lincoln Heights was that I'm I'm an outsider coming to this neighborhood, and I really. I mean, you're not going to be spending months and months. Actually, yeah, you know, yeah. It's just like there's an impossible, the, there's an yeah. impossibility. Right. For me it's to one of the limits. Really understand. <laughs> one yeah. of the limits that you have. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. when we've talked about this a little bit, that my uh, current work is very much about found objects. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm writing a dissertation um, about collage, collage broadly speaking. So basically, just anything with found objects and found imagery. Um, in Los Angeles in the 60s, and um, particularly artists who do, who are interested in invoking narratives, mm-hmm. whether it's necessarily, not necessarily the narratives of the original objects, but yeah. sort of pulling those in into sort of new uh, new approaches to mm-hmm. sort of picturing history or picturing time or uh, the sort of current events and things like that. Um, so it's interesting to me. I mean, obviously, the artists that I, I'm writing about are uh, Wallace Berman, Robert Heineken, and Edward Keenholz. And um, obviously in their finished works, there's going to be a formal aspect as well as mm-hmm. these sort of narrative strains. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting to, me, interesting to me to think of sort of teasing those out mm-hmm. um, when sometimes they seem so fused together. Right, um, right. So it's interesting to me that a lot of the finished products, because I don't think we've, nece- we've never necessarily said what it is that's on view at yeah, Outside yeah. Gallery, yeah. which is um, from those objects specifically that you picked up, sculptures that are either um, sitting or uh, rested against um, mm-hmm. uh, furniture that's already in the space or hanging from a tree that's already in the space or mm-hmm. sort of uh, playing off that in different ways. So it's very sculptural. Right. Um, and there is, that it is interesting how, how you have stripped to a, to a formal, mm-hmm. to a formal view. Right. And it is difficult to, I mean, you can kind of, once you know that it was a big wheel, mm-hmm. you can kind of see it and you can see that it's a piece of plastic and it might've been a toy and you mm-hmm. sort of wonder what that object was, but you do have a knack of, 
seeing these shapes and these parts and you know if i just saw a big wheel on the side of the street obviously i'd be like oh <laughs> yeah. maybe a cousin could use that or something yeah, yeah, like that yeah. but you're like ooh, i see that yeah. wishbone shaped yeah, object yeah. in there or the circles or whatever Definitely. so yeah. yeah yeah well and i think there i mean there could potentially be a narrative with the like history of the material like I, I mean we were talking before about like the idea of like um the reverence for the material and the amount of like energy that's been asserted and embedded inside of these like things like where the, the big wheel probably came from China, you know, just uh -huh, like what right. kind of carbon footprint is behind that. Mm -hmm. And then just like the personal like energy that's been asserted onto it, sure. like, you know, the owners and then there it is on the street. And I, I don't know, there's something about like deciding to take it that I feel like for me is a gesture of like, um, acknowledging that and like, um, I don't know, it's like hoarding maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think if I didn't have an art practice, I would be a hoarder for sure. So like art is a way for me to kind of like, okay, I need to do something with this. I need to like, kind of like digest it. Think well, about I've seen it. your studio and time. it doesn't look like a I know, hoarder I'm studio. I have to say a lot. The, yeah. The, the residency at the dump was the, the, the big test because uh -huh. we could take anything we wanted home. Uh-huh. Yeah, but um, and I would say like eighty-five to ninety percent of the waste going through there was like not waste. Like there was so much there it was still that, usable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. And this was this was the public disposal reclamation area. So it was basically like you you know all of us show up with our car and you know it's not the the garbage trucks. It's not like this was the project in San Francisco that you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, literally in this this huge facility, there's all these um. Uh, uh, what are they called? Excavate? I don't know. Back uh, bulldozers. Sure, sure. Yeah, and they're just there, like kind of slamming everything up against this wall. So they're kind of masticating all the material, and then you have a you have your cart, you have your bright like vest on, and your hard hat, and these gloves, and you're just like trying to kind of like save these things wow. from yeah. like obliteration. Right. Yeah, and then uh, it, I don't know. It's like uh, embedded in that. Uh, residency is this educational aspect so the artists are there as this like liaison for tours going through and you kind of are I guess a, a template for maybe trying to use things thinking twice about throwing things away and like you're listening to the people on K-Chung 1630 a.m. we'll return to our conversation with Kristen Kammermeyer and Claire Riffle in a few minutes but first a new installment of notes from the people this episode, Our Notes from the People, is from Catherine Wagley reading a piece by Carmen Winant from Issue 2 of Contemporary Art Review Los Angeles, or CARLA, at Insert Blanc's edition of Open Press from Saturday, October 10th, 2015. This is called Hot Tears, um, and the subtitle is Why It Is So Hard to Make Artwork About Crying, and it starts with an epigraph. Coming to the weeping itself, cover the face decorously, using both hands, palms inward. Children are to cry with the sleeve of the dress or shirt pressed against the face, preferably in a corner of the room. Average duration of the cry, three minutes. That's um, Julio Cotazar from Instructions on How to Cry. On October 3rd, 2013, something terrible happened to me. A few days later, it got much worse. I wept like weeping was keeping me alive, and I wept like it was the end of my life. It was the kind of crying that you do when your world is changing is changed suddenly and irreparably in a way that is out of your control, not your fault, and you didn't see coming. 
I cried more than I didn't for the many months that followed, siphoning a seemingly bottomless reservoir, often waking myself up in the middle of the night with tight cheeks and a warm, wet shirt collar. It's hard to imagine feelings like this ever ebbing, though of course everything does. My mother says, if it's not over, it's not the end. I became interested in crying as a subject for art. How could I not? It absorbed the majority of my time and energy well into the following year. I avoided it as an idea at first, feeling that to create something of the experience would be a predictable flattening out, a making cute of my own desperate and desperately private situation. I feared turning my pain into a metaphor for my pain. Roland Barthes pondered a similar aversion in the journal he kept after the death of his beloved mother, Henrietta. This is Barthes. I don't want to talk about it for fear of making literature out of it, or without being sure of not doing so. Although, as a matter of fact, literature originates with these truths. End quote. Although, as a matter of fact, literature originates with these truths. I relented. I began to think about how we cry in the face of art, and vice versa. A few notes down in my journal from this time faithfully, are faithfully re-recorded here. Crying, colon, as ends are a mean in A-R-T. Can tears be harnessed as material? Can crying be an action rather than a symbol? Kiki Smith's omissions. Notable, colon, emotions are called feelings slash internal touch. Abjecting, exuding liquid uncontrollably from body, satisfying gross entire. Can women make work about crying? Tear rhymes with near and tear and tear rhymes with beer. Something here? The correct unit of relatable sadness when making work is things we shed, tears, light, blood, partially buried woodshed. Why not make work about it? The experimental filmmaker Roger Beebe, whose 2014 the Story of My Misfortunes, Part 2, The Crying Game, I would encounter a year and a half after scribbling that list, recently wrote me an email as part of a larger exchange. He said, I had a crying session in 1999 that was euphoric. I decided then I wanted to stop shutting down those pleasures. The film, I was, the film that he made, was a desire to address and overcome the, pathologi the pathologization of tears. Whatever happened to catharsis? That's end quote. Beeb's film charts in bright text on a black screen all of the things that made him cry in a single year. Here's, here's, she's quoting the film now. More sports-related tears this morning, although it was only a welling up this time around. Three hours post-tears, I've already forgotten the exact cause. Real crying today. Cried when Bonnie left after our dinner hangout. Cried when telling my mom about our breakup cried more than a few tears this morning during breakfast while watching Cindy Sheehan get into a shoving match with an old veteran in uniform, end quote. The artist's own body is noticeably absent. While emotional clips from A League of Their Own or various athletes te tearing up at ESPN press conferences periodically flash across the screen instead. And so the most obvious place to start my search was in film, that great stockpile of tears for art. I began studying actors and actresses crying on camera. It turns out there's crying in almost every movie. It's hard to win an Oscar without doing it. 
I look to performers for tips on how to cry. What strategies do they use to draw real tears forth? Thinking about dead dads, menthol under the eyes. Wistful caged whimpering and all-out collapse are the methods of choice in Hollywood. Reese Witherspoon is a master at both. I feel appreciative for Reese's willing demonstration of vulnerability and also resentful that it's voluntary. She chooses to emote on the basis of her craft. Control is king. I imagine her practicing in the mirror. I imagine her director's swift praise. Seeking out visual art that pictures crying is not as easy a task. The most prominent example is, of course, Bastian Otter's I'm Too Sad to Tell You from 1972. The black and white three minute film pictures the 29 year old artist inaudibly weeping, swaying in an out of the sorrow spell. Otter simultaneously performs for the cam camera and refuses to acknowledge it. The device is there to bear witness and nothing more. It's a stark and moving act, in part because it comes from a man, in part because the source of the sadness is less important than the feeling itself, and in part because we know Otter will be dead within the next three years, a result of the same melancholic inquiry. It's still the consummate example of an artwork that is about, or at least evidence, is the act of crying. Other notable works that fit in this grouping include Jesper Just's video, No Man is an Island, from 2004, in which he filmed professional opera singers in a dimly lit strip club, each belting out Roy Orbison's song, Crying. One of the singers does cry. And Laurel Nakadati's project, 365 Days, A Catalog of Tears, in which the artist photographed herself shedding tears each day, or, as PS1 stated in their catalog of her exhibition, taking part in the sadness each day. It's hard to compete with I'm Too Sad, but of these three examples, Nakadadi's feels like the weakest creative inquest, more intent on performing sadness than inhabiting it. Then again, maybe I'm, more predis maybe I'm predisposed to find male criming more interesting or uniquely vulnerable. My judgment is suspect. I have a hard time coming up with other examples. The focus on my interest was artwork that pictures crying, not artwork that causes crying. However, in the midst of this reconnaissance, I reread Andrea Fraser's moving 2004 essay, Why Does Fred Sandbach's Work Make Me Cry? And underlined these early lines, which led into the titular question, when I got to the galleries, this is Andrea Fraser, when I got to the galleries with the installations of Sandbach's work, I started to cry. I sat down on a bench there and I wept. Why did Fred Sandbach's work make me cry? Fraser also recalls weeping in the Louvre in 1985, a few years later, while looking at a Rembrandt at the Kunsthistorisch Museum in Vienna, and finally at the Alte Pinothek in Munich in 1993. Her answer, of course, is complex and mutable. I retraced it, looking for clues that I might transport into artwork itself. Among other things, Fraser reckons with her own career, critiquing institutions that house such meaningful work, clarifies the distinction between crying, tearing, and weeping, which includes both crying and tearing, and considers how art of all kinds can point us toward feelings of profound loss, guilt, beauty, violence, mourning, sensitivity, pleasure, melancholy, and fleshiness. Almost a decade later, Francine Prose wrote an essay about Marina Abramovic's three-month performance at MoMA and the subsequent film, also titled The Artist is Present. Considering why dozens of viewers cried while sitting across from Abramovic, Prose writes, Alienated, unmoored, we seek our salvation, one by one, from the artist who brings us the comforting news. 
I see you, I weep when you weep. I picture Otter's camera, his singular and affirmative testifier. I started to record my weeps, to express with tears as defined by my pocket dictionary. My therapist said, an artist's impulse. Some cries last up to 20 minutes, though most are shorter. I'm terrified someone will catch on, a double humiliation. Once, I temporarily lost my phone and became convinced the audio tracks had been hijacked and put on the internet, an idea that naturally made me cry more. Listening to the recording on playback felt as difficult and uncanny as you might imagine. I tried to transcribe them to make language of pre-language, but the work goes nowhere. I attempted other strategies, drawing while I cry, collecting my tears on paper and glass, assembling images of strangers crying from the news, photographing myself while weeping, who hasn't tried that one? I tentatively showed those images to a former employer of mine, a very well-known photographer, who admitted she attempted the same thing years before. Hasn't everyone, she asked, inadvertently affirming my fear that these attempts, however faithfully intended, are shallow and solipsistic. Beeb followed up with another email a few days after he sent the first one, responding this time to the question of his own non-present body. I did shoot some footage of me crying, he said, but turning the camera and lights on, on always made the tears feel a little forced, or it shut them down altogether. And even though at some level there's a lot of me in the video, in voiceover, in the diary text, I wanted to be able to keep gesturing to the ways in which this is a bigger set of questions and issues in our culture. Images of me would have surely tipped the balance. I responded in part. This is her quoting herself. I've been thinking more about physical absence in terms of the body, of course, but also the absence of tears. I suspect they have something to do with each other. And of course they do. To this end, Fraser ultimately concludes that Sandbach's installations engender tears through their lack. By removing himself to the extent that he does, he makes a place for me, Fraser writes in the final paragraphs of her essay. Otter's I'm Too Sad to Tell You was originally ca called Cry Claremont, a reference to where Otter went to school and filmed the work. Did the word cry likewise take up too much emotionally determined real estate? If the process of creative production is an interplay between withholding and generosity, perhaps in the image of another person crying, we cannot locate enough space of our own for the feeling. Note that Abramovic never cries, but acts rather as a mirror. More than the fear of being trite or of turning our very real feelings into the rights of literature, we fear letting the tension go out of a creative act. Perhaps by describing crying in visual art, through actually picturing it, we deliver a work that in some ways has already resolved or dissolved itself, that exists in a state of post-climax. Whatever happened to catharsis? In some real and embodied sense, crying marks the point of moving past the problem and into its release. As artists, that position does not, cannot belong to us. You were just listening to a new edition of Notes from the People with Catherine Wagley reading a piece by Carmen Winant from issue two of Contemporary Art Review Los Angeles, or CARLA, at Insert Blanc's edition of Open Press on Saturday, October 10th, 2015. Now let's return to our conversation with Kristen Kamemeyer and Claire Rook. The project immediately before the outside gallery installation that you did was at Hadrine Gallery at Say it again, Seattle. Seattle University. At Seattle University. And there's a 
piece in the current in your current installation at Outside Gallery that comes from that. Mm-hmm. So how did that process? And it's a video, mm-hmm. and then then there's also the six paneled work with video projected on it, mm-hmm. and both of those were very much inspired or came straight from that space. So how did that work? I decided to screen this, this stop motion video that I had produced up at Seattle University and I hadn't shown it here yet. And it seemed like a great opportunity to Mm -hmm. share it. It was really fresh and I was really excited about it. So it started with, okay, definitely going to screen that. And then, um, the sculptures started finding form and then, I had been working on these paintings and then it occurred to me like these these should be shown next to the video because there's a direct relationship between the two. So I was invited to go up there and it was a two month long exhibition. And I mean, the thing with doing these site specific pieces is that you kind of end up producing them during the exhibition unless I was able to build off site and then install. So you were invited to come to this space. Mm-hmm. And do you say, I mean gather some materials or how did how did that happen that you just here's some artificial plants to put in your work Kristen I mean yeah, how does yeah, that yeah. work that no 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 they didn't brings that to you right um well I mean I was I've been it was something that I was thinking about in my studio projects like uh being new here there's a lot of things that I'm yearning for and I think it's part of the process of coming to assimilate to this new it's a it's very strange to me. LA feels very strange to me uh-huh. and foreign. And so I've been trying to maybe think about the work that I'm making as a way to supplement mm-hmm. those things that sure. I'm desiring. And so, what yeah. Are, what are some of those Well, things? that would be <laughs> trees. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's one really scraggly palm tree across the street uh-huh. and then some <laughs> ruderal um, vegetation that, that's able to find its way through cracks in the mm-hmm. sidewalk. Right. But, uh, and then obviously water. Like water is a huge right. issue here. So, um, so yeah, these were things that I was working on just small kind of sketches in the studio. Mm-hmm. So those were things that were on my mind as I was approaching this road trip up to Seattle and Seattle is just like Uber green right. place. And, um, yeah, so it just felt very like, uh, alternate alternative to LA <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, like the Seattle lifestyle even too. And so, um, I think I was thinking about these contrasts sure. a lot when I approached going to this space. And then I thought it was also really interesting that I was the, the, the gallery is in the atrium of the theater gotcha. department and there's a theater there. And so um, I also was thinking a lot about the staged and um, the artifice. And um, a lot of times I do have to... Sp- fill a a large volume of space. So Mm -hmm. sometimes the material is about, oh, there's a lot of it. So there was a lot of plastic plants. So Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I can, the installation's like this really long telescoping, maybe 20 feet long space that I was playing with. I set up the camera and wanted to play with the depth of field and flattening out this really expansive space. So Mm -hmm. I, I, it occurred to me that I would be able to kind of, um, kind of shuffle in these plants throughout this production mm-hmm. so. because when you were in Hedrine Gallery, you and this is something you've done in other mm-hmm. uh, site-specific uh, shows before. You kind of like set up a camera in one spot, and it kind of stays there, and right. it stayed in that spot for two months. Right, and it's kind of a so the video that we see in the end is six weeks or almost two months of yeah. like the whole mm-hmm. show. Right, it, right. Explain that because I think like for a listener, yeah. 
it's hard to kind of quite understand how that works. Right, right. It's hard to understand even when you see the video. I know, yeah. yeah it's actually it's really so, disorienting. It becomes yeah. very, it becomes, because that space is so flattened, it's hard to understand what you're looking at in a right. very cool way. Right, yeah. right. So yeah, I went in, I, I decided this is where the camera will be, kind of worked with the cropping and then um, started to, like as a, as a painting works, kind of started to fill in loosely background foreground and again I do yeah a lot of these um site-specific pieces that uh with the stop motion I'm definitely thinking about how a painting is built I think it's just something that's like rudimentary in me that's what I was that where I came from so I definitely think of these as like in paintings that I can walk into and Mm -hmm. modify and edit and then I'm capturing that with this like image that becomes flat again and Mm -hmm. so the video for me is this like moving painting experience um and so that informed like where I was gonna make the layout of the installation like it's like okay I have the uh I need to be able to access the material because I'm changing it over like a six week period of time so I need to be able to get in there with ease because I've made some in the past that become a nightmare like I'm just like scratching my back on nails and Mm -hmm. I make it too tight so I'm Uh like oh I can just stretch this out I can stretch out I can get into it with ease and so the installation ended up becoming these like four kind of layers um I think that's that's like a photo I think it's like I use photoshop so much and photoshop is like this like layers is it's like I think how it's, it's organized it's you know? informed like, a lot of work yeah, yeah a lot yeah. of work painting all sorts right. of work we see today right and I'm de- I'm going in and I'm tinting it with co- it's sure. like even like the the um, image adjustment uh, options in Photoshop I think are definitely kind of seeping into yeah what, what I'm doing when I do these installations but then also like um strategies and painting where it's like oh I want to um I think I'm, I'm interested in flattening out and making it kind of confusing. So it's almost like working in, in contrast to like how you would make an effective, maybe representational painting of space. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, I need that background to really pop forward and I need the foreground to really recede. So it's just thinking about like color relationships and lighting and potentially like atmospheric perspective and things like that. Those are things that I that like will um, kind of drive decision making mm-hmm. while I'm well the yeah. end the end product of the video mm-hmm. is uh, has a psychedelic feel to it right, um, right because of all these colors of the materials that you've been putting in the space I mean mm-hmm. there's like neons and mm-hmm. and they come from just a lot of the time industrial materials mm-hmm. um, you right. know tape that you found at Home Depot that's mm-hmm. made for you know, X, Y, Z and it's neon yellow. Right, or, and right. so all these colors come from that and they're flittering by so quickly because it's a stop motion animation mm-hmm. and you don't see you because you take that out or you, you actually never right. even film right, right. Um, seeing your body in the space. So mm-hmm. all of this is kind of happening very quickly. Mm-hmm. And then you worked with the soundtrack the, right, is, right. The found sounds in the space. Yeah, and right, it was right. produced by you my my friend Michael Dillon, uh-huh, and he's yeah. in Seattle, and he has a music background. Uh-huh, and yeah, um, and so there's this kind of hum, mm-hmm. and then you see all these like crazy lights and yeah. colors. Um, and then also one thing we hadn't talked about in the the installation at Outside Gallery, you have that sound overlay, and then mm-hmm. these very at night dimly lit sculptures. There, mm-hmm. there is this 
sense of sort of the occult something right. sort of dark and yeah. there's also this pool of water that you built into the ground that mm-hmm. at night looks like you could sort of like sink into it if mm-hmm. you stepped in um and and uh, writing about the 60s which is something that i've been doing a lot especially in la i mean psychedelia and and um artists were extremely interested in the occult mm-hmm. um in the late 50s and into the 60s um so to me there is a very sort of la aspect to the installation that you've done that maybe you know sort of happened either by accident <laughs> yeah, or yeah. or uh or it's just because of the site who knows you know that right. sort of works right. it in and the the paintings very much respond to this video correct yes yes yeah. you you have taken some elements some formal elements from the video and mm-hmm. introduced them right into the right. painting including actually not just the formal elements but also some the objects. very materials yeah, yeah exactly the right. tapes and right the right sheets yeah. and the, leftover scraps yeah. right and, exactly yeah, yeah. I was allowing myself to work a little more freely in the studio because I was I wasn't again there's this um, notion of centering that is in my work and symmetry, which I think is interesting in relationship to using discarded materials that all have these like nicks and dings and right. no I symmetry. think a lot about the bot the human body too and this like uh, um, like idealized um, attraction that we're we're supposed to have we respond to symmetry and. Mm-hmm. Um, and also in the idea of like meditation and centering and like, um, uh, those are all things that I'm thinking about in the work. And so, um, the, the panels are organized in such a way too. So the, the, where the, the three on the left and the three on the right meet, that's the center point of the video. And I think that's how you see it as well. There's like this radiating and like this concentration that happens in the middle and then this like, uh, falling apart that Mm -hmm. happens on either uh, flanking either side. And that's. That's uh, totally parallel to the arc of the video as well. You're listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. You can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. So please take the time to subscribe, rate, and review the show. We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. To find out more, go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. And now let's get back to our conversation with Kristen Kammermeyer and Claire Riffle. So not only are you going between digital and analog in mm-hmm. your work, but then there's also static and time-based. Right, right. And, and the video, the six panels that you're talking about, you have installed it outside gallery with a projection onto it mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. sort of, that makes the different layers and colors. So the, the video projection shifts color mm-hmm. and it alters how we perceive right. the different parts of the panels over time. Right. So becomes very dynamic Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah and i i'm very interested in work being able to shift i'm interested i uh i I guess thinking about the way i used to make painting i felt this hindrance and like working on a painting and like just like capping it like it's done you know and um i got really uh I would always experience this point of paralysis in making Mm -hmm. work when it was like 95% done Mm -hmm. and like it's approaching its end, you know, it's like going to die soon or whatever. (laughs) And so um, I think that's where stop motion has become integral in the practice as well. It's just like kind of capturing the work in its making and Mm -hmm. this like cycle of it. There is no end (laughs) point. You don't have to make that decision. Right, right. And And the stop motion more than the sculptural pieces or the painting aspects of the other pieces like to me highlights the absence of the human form Mm -hmm. in there right like not the form but the presence of a human body like it's there because these are all things that were that were collected and constructed but Mm -hmm. the stop motion like it's moving 
but there's no, you don't see hands in there. Right, 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 right. right. And, and if it, you enter in the middle of the video where you haven't seen that it started from a gallery, you probably, I would just think it was digital. Sure. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's yeah, like yeah. it's really difficult to tell that these are actually pieces of tape and... Right. Yeah. I mean, every now and there's little hints. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but uh, it's so meticulously it's, it's constructed. It's so meticulously constructed yeah. that yeah. it's, yeah. I was going to come around. I have I still have this question or observation about, like, your investment in the spaces because there's it seems like there's two things going on. Like, mm-hmm. one, whatever the piece is, is 150% invested in the location, mm-hmm. right? Because you collect the things from the constituent parts of the piece from the area Mm -hmm. and it's you're thinking about ideas you know relevant to the specific location Mm -hmm. but just hearing you talk about doing these like little episodes of micro hoarding Mm -hmm. you know it's (laughs) like there's this other way in which it like it could be any spot you know it could be out in the woods or it could be in uh, on a corner in Lincoln Heights Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and so it's hard for me to understand like I mean I think that's an interesting disparity Mm -hmm. but Maybe I want to hear you talk about like what your investment in the actual space is or if there is any really. Right, right. And how that relates to like the fact that I feel like you could just go into anywhere mm-hmm. or go anywhere and kind of do this thing. Right, right, right. Well, I feel like there's a certain amount of impression that happens on the work. I think and that's like forced on by the, um, the architecture of the space. Um, I think... I think to answer your question, I, I want to talk about a project that he did at the McDowell Colony, which really for me was a pivoting point for um, getting into this more like meditative, spiritual aspect, zone out kind of video thing happening. And the space that I had there was a replica of a chapel. And it was really symmetrical and there were these beautiful archways and it was all stone. So it was a completely kind of different environment for me. But um, those architectural forms ended up becoming generating points for how I composed the piece. And so in the end, I I feel that that site really was critical in that work becoming what it was. It's like this foundation, you know, and it's like pretty much the way the building was built was for a single person to enter and then you would encounter the piece centered and then you would have to kind of move to either side and you would see the the work kind of disintegrate um, where the, the stop motion functions as a way to kind of tighten everything up. It's this whole other kind of thing. But if you are subject to visiting these installations, there's a little bit of a, um, a, I, I imagine a little bit of an experience of things becoming kind of um, eroded and corroded a little bit because you see like how chintzy, yeah, you uh-huh. see the imperfections, you, th- you see everything that's happening out of the picture frame. Mm-hmm. So there's all this peripheral chatter and kind of um, mess. Right. And you see all... that the objects are basically found. They're not like right, right. Know, some fancy fabric right. or something Right, exactly. Like that. I guess to me it does feel like it is something that you could do almost anywhere. And I think it's interesting that the the approach that you have is a mobile one, mm-hmm. that it can really be sort of sort of ported anywhere. But yeah, they so. seem like you're not meeting them halfway. It seems like you're going all like <laughs> it, they're so like we yeah, said, they're so yeah. meticulously constructed and so right. radically transformed in 
not the materials themselves being like melted down and sculpted into something else, but they're arranged so formally mm -hmm. and so correctly, you yeah. know, in this very painterly way right. that it seems like it's all you, mm -hmm. you know, which, which is, it creates, and I don't take this the wrong way, like it creates this kind of coldness, mm -hmm. you know, and distance from the actual location, right. which is a, an intriguing part of the pieces. Right. You know, it's like, if you tell me that all this stuff is reclaimed material, mm -hmm. like I can get that, but it seems like that big wheel, the deconstructed big wheel, it's, you've pushed it so far from it being this gross thing on the side of the street. Mm -hmm. Like it is now, it is art, now, mm -hmm. you know, capital A, mm -hmm. art. Um, which, and I think that's a, a part of the appeal of the work is mm -hmm. that distance. But is that just me or... No, no, okay. I'm interested in that distance. And I, yeah, I'm, maybe I should ask you, like, so what happens when you recognize it as, um, it, uh, recognize the parts, you know, like what, what's the difference between encountering the whole and then starting to break it apart? Like, well, it, yeah. it brings, yeah, it creates a, it creates a question in my mind of, of investment, which I don't, you know, I'm not saying one should have or one shouldn't have, mm -hmm. but it's like, it makes me think about your relationship to the site. Is there a certain kind of a, a elitism that you think happens when you make highly formalized work? And is that in some ways like. No, not necessarily. Or, yeah. Cause it doesn't look like it doesn't look like it's so much you, right. you know, these things that it doesn't look like you'd be like, yeah, I'm part of the neighborhood. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. like yeah. that. It doesn't... I mean, yeah. And that's what I really didn't want to do. You well, know, right. like, yeah, yeah. 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 I didn't want to be like, Oh, I know what's going on here. And like, right. yeah, I want to make yeah. like, yeah, but um, I'm just saying yeah. it's interesting that like when you're in the you know when you're in the woods in that chapel like mm -hmm. that that reads a certain way, right? Right. But like it doesn't take much for it to be to become, uh, the ice to get a little thinner, right? Right. You know, and yeah. so I'm, I guess my question is like, how, do you think about that sort of thing like mm -hmm. from site to site, or is it just like make this beautiful formal thing like yeah yeah is, does the process just be the process every time yeah i mean it's interesting because like maybe you know in those videos there's these there are these loops that start with what i you know call like the zero point which is mm -hmm. a shot of the space like without any trace of me in it it's just how i found it and i've framed it in the camera and then it always returns to that point so it's this like this like documentation of this like kind of hyper activity that happens there and so that's me i guess <laughs> like that's yeah. like what i need to do and then it goes when i'm away. there and yeah then and then it it's like away. i sweep every like there's one yeah. that i actually show all the little sweeps uh -huh. of the right. dust that's gotcha. collected at the that was in the garage yeah. uh -huh. space um and also in the waste management uh right, stop right. motion video yeah, yeah. you show that as well right but that ties in for me to the idea of recycling, reusing, not wanting to make an imprint in a sense. Exactly. Like yeah. there's almost yeah. that aspect of it, right. that it's right. like, in some ways the formalism does seem out of place, but then there right. is this odd way in which it like sort of like, oh yeah, sure. One aspect of working with found objects is that they, it, as you had mentioned earlier, it takes out a lot of the decision-making mm -hmm. and you have to work with the colors that they have, mm -hmm. the, the forms that they have. Mm -hmm. um, and color is something that seems to carry over very much from one installation of yours to another. Mm -hmm. There are these these brights and these muteds mm -hmm. that sort of there's a you maintain a similar color palette. Right, right. Yeah, I'm interested in kind of trying to have a full spectrum of those things. For me, um, I did about 
five years of color mixing for an mm-hmm. artist in New York, um, mm-hmm. Yvonne Jacquette. And I, it was kind of my Mr. Miyagi like experience for sure. Like she had an incredibly nuanced eye and I was like, no, not cold enough, you know, and go back <laughs> and like, so, um, I think that's really much embedded in me, but the, um, color matching is really important. Like, uh, as far as, a, a, a tactic to fuse the found with the picture plane. Mm-hmm. So that, and also that just like ends up becoming this, um, kind of um, fixed palette that I'll kind of work with throughout the whole project. From the big wheel, it's mm-hmm. there's this pink plastic. Yeah, yeah. And so you mixed a color and right. put it in other, into yeah, the yeah, painting. Yeah, yeah. yeah I okay. kind of yeah. like sprinkled that throughout all uh-huh. the pieces. There's that purple. And then the green was informed by the tray. Uh-huh. And then the yellow was informed by the padding of the the chair that I took apart. Right. So, um, and those and are the, also kind of offsets they're of kind the of, primary they're, colors. Right, those like, colors are, yeah, they're kind of secondary. Yeah. They're yeah. kind of sort of dusty. Right, I right, mean, right. probably mostly because they're like from the 70s and 80s. Well, and they're bleached. Yeah, you know? yeah, from the sun, good yeah, point. Yeah. But then the other level of colors, the brights, mm-hmm. a lot of it comes from tapes, right, right? right. that you just kind of get straight from Home Depot. Right, yeah. Well, a lot of the material that I started using um, uh, when I was in grad school, I felt, I felt compelled to start utilizing materials that reflected my subject matter, which was basically the urban environment. Mm-hmm. And um, and I also was interested in how city the, the way a city was built, because I was also interested in how a painting was constructed. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a, a way to like, um, I guess, conflate my interest in painting with the subject matter that I was painting. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, Home Depot became my art supply store. It didn't make any sense to me to be using uh, lead prime linen uh, oil paints anymore. So that was the transition to that. But um, so, yeah, going to Home Depot is uh, it's always really fun shopping for like, um, I don't know, like distinctive colors that seem like they don't belong in like a Home Depot, but they, like that uh, turquoise gauze tape is for drywalling and it's, it feels like very much like a painterly color. It does. So, it's like teal. Yeah. yeah and I think it's just yeah. like can, kind of confuses it a little mm-hmm. bit. It's not so direct, but, um, and then flagging tape is interesting to me cause that's something what color that, is that? that well, you can color? get them in all different colors oh, okay. and I, I, I should probably look into it, but it, they're probably all coded when you're working mm-hmm. on a construction site. I'm sure, I'm sure fluorescent orange means something versus right. fluorescent pink and same with, the surveyor's um, string, which is what I use. So, um, yeah, like those seemed like a logical step in the material choices because they kind of work within the conversation about development, like developing a painting, developing like, um, I don't know, I think sometimes these paintings are reflective a little bit of the kind of bird's eye view of the grid over a terrain. So, um uh, yeah, and then fluorescence, I think, is a really interesting thing for me because it's a very powerful color, but it's also incredibly vulnerable to mm-hmm. fading. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also has this uh, ability to be activated, like with the blue light on the panels, like it, it just lifts off the panel. Um, so there's something really kind of magical about that. Um, and these colors and, kind of make their way into our minds. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, stop sign red and right, right. You know, the yield and the, the that green of all the highway signs and right, everything. Right. They really sort of come to have this sort of embedded yeah. 
meaning. Right, right. And they have a life as like those fluorescent, like the mason line or the caution tape or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like they have, they have different parts of their life, which I think relates to your work. Like they have the part where they're active, Mm -hmm. where they're stopping you from falling in a manhole or or stepping in front of a bus or whatever. But as soon as that project is over, they become trash and right. they become faded. Right. And so they're still out there because no one ever throws those things away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're just, they're still attached to the same ball right, or, right, or right, whatever. Right. Or they're in some guy's dorm room. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. But I also like with that string, I also like that it's used to level, like people will use it for pouring concrete. Yeah, and it's the, ma- mason line. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. And like the plumb line and all that. And like I, I have some of the chalk, you know, for snapping like straight mm-hmm. lines. And mm-hmm. I think I do also think a lot about leveling perpendicularity and nice. um, how that kind of works against this notion of things kind of in a perpetual state of like aggravation, like everything that we build, everything around us, our bodies, like everything's kind of like has all this maintenance involved. Like Mm -hmm. we're all, we're just like trying to keep things together all the time. (laughs) Right. So, um, so yeah, I think, uh, that's where, which is like, that's like that, you know, borderline neurotic, like idea is like, that's in the work for sure. For sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, how can oh, I make good. it beautiful? Like, <laughs> yeah, how can yeah, I make yeah. this trash beautiful? But then also, they're, they're, I'm also trying to accept the fact, especially with the installations, there's so much energy that I exert in this like sprint. And then it's like, it's time to let go. And so I'm also trying to like be able to figure out some kind of practice where I can kind of like assert my like OCD maybe, but then I have to take it all apart. You know, like I have to just like, let it go, Kristen, let it go. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And the, and the dismantling of it, I mean, that's Mm -hmm. a part of that's I've, from what I've read and what I've seen, like that's Mm -hmm. often a part of the piece is the dismantling of it. Right. Right. And then the stop motion, it's, you see it being right dismantled and re- remantled remantled <laughs> <laughs> well and typically yeah. towards the end of your stop motion animations as well you see like a new another inventory like an ending inventory right, right. of all the things that you had right. like slightly altered like now there's a little bit more pink pink paint or right, like right, neon right. paint on these objects right and it's like the scars this, yeah you know, i mean like, and it's really it's really nice to see it cuz uh, you also typically start the videos with like here's the materials I collected. Right. I've pulled them apart until they're into into their constituent elements and, mm-hmm. and you set up like an inventory and then you see it again at the end. Right, right. And it's really, you know, it's nice. Right. It's like there's a little transformation and everything mm-hmm. that happened. It's a it's a great way to build an ephemeral work and to really right account for. Right. Like And I'm I'm also trying yeah. to create systems of production in my studio that kind of work against my desire to overwork and kind of so it's yeah things like I mean even especially at outside gallery like exposing it to the elements I'm kind of curious I'm really curious to see what happens and like what my relationship is with the sculptures over time there um like how much maintenance should I really put into it like I've been going there and like scrubbing down the linoleum you know and I'm like maybe I just need to let it stain yeah. Let it go. Let it go, Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah. Well, Kristen Kammermeyer and Claire Riffle, thank you guys for being on The People. Yeah, thanks. Of course. Thanks, thanks for thank having so us. Appreciate it. You've been listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. Our theme music, as always, is Ock Fifth by Lewis Keller. You can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio, so please take the time to go there and subscribe, rate, and review the show. 
or go to insertblancpress.net and click on the people at the top of the page. And we're going to go out with a song from Los Angeles band Deep Crack, which is Yana Larson and Jay Urker. And this is from their album Death Snack. The name of the track is Cool Better. Okay. Yeah. 